Before we get started, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who are supporting us on Patreon. We'll give you the link later on for those who want to sign up, but while there is no on-field action to report on, apart from a couple of tournaments over the weekend, there are still so many stories to share. Keep an eye at EmergingCricket.com and our various social channels and make sure to leave us a five-star rating and if you can, a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. On today's show, we catch up with some live cricket. Yes, that is live cricket that took place over the weekend. And we speak again with one of our valued contributors, Tasneem Samarkhan, as we continue our discussion of some of the broader issues surrounding sport and its place in cultural contexts. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Once again, my name is Daniel Beswick and with me are the usual suspects. We'll also hear from Tasneem Samarkhan a little bit later. First, the man known by many as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm well, Bez. I've uh, been baking today, so the whole house smells like banana bread, which is uh, really nice. Oh, we've got that on the menu coming up as well. Mm, it's a good one. Just been waiting for the these bananas to be to be ready. We, we did some cookies the other day. So do you... Do you have to use ultra-ripe bananas? Like, is, is that the way you do it, or do you use them as, you, as ripe as you normally eat them? What's the? Uh, I don't want to get too far into cooking because uh, the biryani chat last week kind of had me too hungry, but uh, <laughs> what's the secret to a good banana bread? Well, I, I like to, to leave them just basically to get as, as spotty as possible because uh, basically what's happening when they're getting riper is they're getting sweeter, so that makes the banana bread tastier, in my opinion. There you go. Baking with Skinner. <laughs> good. We made some choc chip cookies last night, which went down a treat. Mm. Uh, glad to hear you're keeping well in the circumstances, Nick. Uh, next, our favourite left-arm orthodox spinner, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I- I'm good. Um, yeah, pretty much similar to last week. Um, you know, the lockdown of sorts continues. Um, apparently, the restrictions are going to ease next weekend up here in sunny Queensland, where it's late April in 1990, um, <laughs> but going for walks or trying to go for walks as I'm limping around after trying to run and doing something to my calf, but we don't need to go into that. People are definitely not being safe with their social distancing, so I'm, I'm pretty happy being being at home, but um, no, great to be back again. few good interviews the last few weeks, so uh, happy to be here, Bez. How are you? How are you coping with everything getting cool down there? I, nobody else can see this, but he's all rugged up. <laughs> It is getting a little bit cooler as we move towards the winter months, but I do concur on the on the guests part of, of our show over the last few weeks. They've been excellent. Um, got another great one lined up. But apart from that, yeah, look, things the mood's been pretty upbeat over the last week or so. I think we're all uh, almost in the swing of things with this situation at the moment and from an emerging cricket viewpoint, I've been able to, to focus on a, a lot of work on that front and, and punching out a lot of content and enjoying doing that. So, and, you know, any opportunity to do some more work on that front and to, to build the game outside of its traditional centres, I think is is good for us. We'll hear from Tasneem Samarkhan again in part two of our chat with her. But first, boys, we do have some cricket to talk about which did play out over the weekend and congratulations to uh, both Vanuatu Cricket and the people involved in the Taipei T10 for putting up tournaments this weekend and both having streams for the tournament. We'll start with Vanuatu guys that had a women's finals T20 day and a men's T10 exhibition intra-squad match as well between members of the Vanuatu national team. Uh, excellent just to see cricket on again. Uh, congratulations to Vanuatu, to Shane Dietz and his team there for putting up the stream. I think they had 400,000 viewers at 
uh, one point there. Uh, multi-camera stream, quality video production, uh, the audio was great, the commentary was good, and it just shows, and I know, boys, that I will throw it to you eventually, but I wanted to make the point that, look, it can be achieved, you know, a lot of people are looking for this cricket, this international cricket via streams, and we talk about qualifying events in parts of the world where there have not been streams for them, when, you know, there's a very achievable way to, to, to do this, from what Vanuatu have done all the way to a TV production like the ECL, for example, it shows that it's not difficult to do. So for Vanuatu to put this up, it sets a nice precedent for others to follow. Uh, it was a great guide in what to do when, when streaming a cricket event. And Nick, it was just great just to see cricket on, on our screens once more. Yeah, as, as you say, it was a fantastic effort from Vanuatu to get it on. And uh, I believe this was the first time that the Vanuatu national broadcaster has uh, ever filmed a cricket match. So it was it was pretty good in that sense, you know. Sometimes um, I remember your interview with Dan Weston where he talked about the challenges of uh, you know, cameramen who, who have never seen cricket before trying to figure out how to film it. And um, yeah, it, it, it looks slick. And as you said, there's, there's really no excuse for um, other matches around the associate world to not be streamed you know if Vanuatu can do it um I think anyone can yeah I can only follow on with that uh, you've got to start somewhere and I recall when we started in Hong Kong when we did the ODIs the World Cricket League Championship geez that feels like a long time ago saying that that term but um local film crew had never seen cricket before let alone filmed it and i occasionally go back and and, and watch it and i won't say i get teary okay well i do get teary eyed <laughs> because i know how much work went into that but yeah i can only echo what you said there it's uh, a great little proof of concept for what can be replicated and, and hopefully we can see closer partnerships like this between other boards and their their local broadcasters and hopefully it's cricket that sort of becomes the the vanguard for um, more fixtures and telecasts like this well it, it does make me think that you know you, you talked about the numbers there bears uh, 400,000 plus on the on the live stream and obviously a lot of that's just because there's there's no other sport and i think i saw the new york times ran a, ran an article on it which you know for a country of 250,000 their domestic women's tournament getting this sort of attention is just incredible um what are some of the opportunities tim just thinking more from a, a kind of business uh, ceo hat uh, what are what are the opportunities here and, and how should vanuatu kind of capitalize on on the unexpected attention that they've they've got well from the off it's a great little uh, story for Vanuatu to, to show the cricketing world. I think the key for, for Shane Dietz, it was a bit like the Shane Dietz show, wasn't it? He was out in the, the middle of the ground commentating, talking the day mm-hmm. before and, and running the commentary as well. And I guess it, it really helped having someone with the experience of first-class cricket to sort of pull that all together, which put together a really slick show. Um, I think I get two two trains of thought there as the potential. They're able to, to get more cricket on the field and get something similar together soon. They're going to have a big chance to potentially bring in some advertising dollars and, and partners, uh, similar to what the ECL does with Fancode and Dream11. Uh, we saw Fancode stream the, the ACC East qualifiers as well. So there's there's potential out there. And with the, the numbers where that 400K is, you know, we know the majority of, the, of that's going to be the subcontinent. So there is potential of some income coming into 
to Vanuatu there, but I'd be looking to probably pivot from that and looking to talk to my South Pacific neighbours if I'm Vanuatu about getting some sort of South Pacific T20 up and sort of ride the wave of this interest to, to maybe even look at a sort of intra-regional T20 or even a, a, um, a franchise tournament around the region. The problem is it costs so much money and it's so it takes such a long time to get around that it might not be feasible. But these are the options now because the world knows that, that Vanuatu plays cricket and, and it's a beautiful place. That actually leads into something, um, Melissa Fare, who's there, I think head of marketing, um, and she was also playing in, in the final as well. She was talking to the ABC radio about basically what Vanuatu was doing before you know international travel basically ceased to exist was um, they were trying to set themselves up as a, a host for tours from club teams from Australia and New Zealand as a sort of cricket tourism destination and combining that you know, beaches and all that kind of side of things with the with the cricket and giving the national team some exposure to decent quality play and, and that was obviously for the men's and women's teams. So I, I think they have some good ideas coming through and, and as you say, Tim, if they can get it going, I think having a, a Pacific T20 competition would be a lot of fun. You know, just looking at some of the names that we see in the, the East Asia Pacific uh, qualifiers, there's some uh, really good cricket that gets played down at that level. So having a, a kind of franchise tournament, I, I think, would be worthwhile. And so I think they've got a product there. It's just how they go about um, getting it out to the world. Yeah, as someone who's been to Vanuatu, it's an excellent place um, to, to go on holiday. But yeah, as you said there with with the comments made, there is every chance that you can get development built up in that area by bringing touring teams from Australia and New Zealand to the area to play uh, some competitive cricket and to develop the the skill of, of, of everyone playing in that. On the field, uh, it was a pretty dominant performance by the Melee Bulls to take out um, victory there by seven wickets and with just under 10 overs to spare. Um, I know we've been talking about, you know, shirts and the World Cup of Joseph that we put out on uh, emerging cricket, but I would dare say that blue and purple is a is a is a great mix, and it did look fantastic on the stream. But to bring them back to the actual action on the field, yeah, a pretty dominant performance by the Melee Bulls, who, as I said, won by seven wickets. A couple of uh, notable performers, Valenta Langiatu making 51 off 36 balls, basically doing the chase almost by herself. And there were eight wickets shared between uh, Melanie Vatoko and, and Vicky Mansala, who took four wickets each, four for uh, 10 and four for 12, respectively. Great performance from them, but again, just a good way to showcase that the skill of the Vanuatu girls and members of the Vanuatu national team, not only the women playing on that side, but also in that men's intra-squad friendly as well, Nick. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see them. And, and these are some names that I've sort of been following. Um, I remember Valenta Langiatu had a really good tournament in the the regional qualifier uh, the east asia pacific uh, i know vanuatu didn't progress i think they came third from memory but she had the highest strike rate and the most boundaries and she was really showing that today but actually getting to see her play was was quite interesting and she has a very funny sort of a high backlift but she keeps the the bat really low in her hands and generates a lot of power with her wrist so it was just interesting to see her thrashing at it like that um a, a bigger family connection you mentioned vicky mansale the ex-national skipper andrew mansale was uh, was umpiring and he was very uh, very trigger happy he uh, he fired out quite a few people with uh, some slightly uh, borderline decisions i think um 
And uh, I think there was uh, four Chileas in the Melee Bulls team related to uh, men's national player uh, Jelani Chilea as well. So that the Melee village is a bit like uh, Hanabata from PNG where they've, they've just obviously developed a really strong cricketing culture and they've provided a lot of the national team members. But yeah, it was, it was a good product, as I said. And the only thing I thought was a bit strange was seeing the, the Sharks kept um, Selena Solomon, the, the national team skipper down at number six when she's a, a really strong power hitter. And they were in quite a lot of trouble, as you said, with uh, uh, Mansali and Vitoko tearing through the top order there. So I'm not sure what that was going on there. But uh, yeah, all up a very, very entertaining uh, game of cricket. And we were lucky Vanuatu was not the only place in the world that hosted live cricket. It's that adage of, of not having the bus coming for ages and then all of a sudden two buses coming at once. Uh, Taipei also hosted a T10 tournament in which it began last weekend. I believe it goes on to this upcoming weekend as well. Uh, there were six T10 matches played. Just to run through quickly the, the results there in match one, the Hisinchu Titans won by five wickets over the Taiwan Daredevils. The TCA Indian Club then beat the Hinchu Titans by three runs in a close affair. Chiaiwai Swingers played FCC Formosans, uh, and the Formosans won by six wickets. And the other three matches were won by Taiwan Daredevils, PCCT United, and the TCA Indians. Uh, not a whole lot to, to go on here. They did run the streaming service through an app, but also through a YouTube service as well. I did get a chance to, to watch a little bit of it. There was only matting on, on half of the wicket, but still to make the most of the resources and to, to put up a tournament stream and, and to show it to the world is quite admirable, Nick. Yeah, and, and I guess it, just uh, looking a bit more broadly, it shows uh, how effective Taiwan's response to the virus has been. You know, I think their baseball tournament and, and football competitions are both opened up as well. So obviously they're uh, well ahead of a lot of other places in terms of uh, dealing with the situation. But yeah, as we were talking about with Vanuatu, I think this is just a, a good opportunity for them to you know, get, get a bit more attention that, oh, you know what, they do play cricket in Taiwan. Yeah, it was very reminiscent, um, sort of got it on the background as well, sort of watching it, very reminiscent of the uh, European cricket series uh, with that sort of level and with the, the multicultural flavour. And it's good to see, as you say, knowing that it's being played in Taiwan, you know, making the best of what they have. It's a very lush field that they've got there, probably, I don't know whether it's an athletics field or, or, or what, but. Uh, I, I wasn't too aware of actually of how much cricket was was played in in Taiwan. That's probably not that good considering that working in, in in Hong Kong cricket. But there's something to, to build on there. There's again sort of proof of concept. People have watched, but it, it's really sort of reminds me of the the Sixers tournaments around around Asia. They get played in the Philippines and Taiwan and Bali and 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 whatnot. But um, potentially one other one for the um, for the tour there in Taiwan because that's always a, a great one for touring teams to go around and and usually makes a bit of money as well because. They teams pay a bit to uh, go and play but uh, isn't it funny who'd have thought we'd be sitting here talking about cricket in in Vanuatu and Taiwan and have no other cricket to talk about apart from that <laughs> this is when the emerging cricket podcast hopefully comes to the fore as one of the uh, cornerstone producers of cricket content because we are the ones who have been following <laughs> all this cricket for all this time and, and everyone's just jumping on the bandwagon now now's our time to shine you know we we liked this cricket before before you guys were cool no <laughs> yeah again and I think we will see a gradual opening of, of tournaments around the world being played, perhaps in the Northern Hemisphere with, with the summer coming around and, and hopefully things starting to open up. It will just depend on how a lot of these places have coped with the, the situation that we're all in. But it's fascinating to see to see this and hopefully we will have more cricket to cover and we will be here trying to, to cover as much of it as we can. 
Hopefully, we're going to have some more cricket to talk about in the near future. But for now, let's catch up again with Tasneem Samarkand to discuss broader issues in the game of cricket. Saudi Arabia had their first women's match in the country. I think it was on the 11th of March. And we brought up the prospect of this just being a case of sport washing. Now, sport washing, uh, for people who don't quite understand is the hosting of a, of a sporting event or owning of a team as a means for a country to improve its reputation, uh, particularly in this case, uh, if it has a poor record on human rights, uh, like Saudi Arabia do. And we, we've brought it up and we've discussed uh, moral issues in regards to, to, to other sports in, in Western countries and in countries where, you know, f- for the most part, a lot of, a lot of these places are, are, are quite comfortable in, in in how they operate but we looked to, to some places in well Saudi Arabia is one example where you know women's rights has, has struggled uh over the years you know we we saw stories just a couple of years ago where you know there were women who were flying into Riyadh airport into Saudi Arabia which was at the time a country where women weren't allowed to drive and Nick I think it was you that, that came across the story in the first place you have to wonder yeah just how how much of it was just made just for for a PR, not a PR stunt, but but just for some some you know attention from something like the Abir Medical Group. I'm not exactly sure you know how much work they do in the area, but it is important to be to be wary of this and to to be on top of it to to know just how uh, how big this particular story was. Well, and and the other thing as well is that um the the article I read said that this this match was part of the um broader shift in Saudi Arabia trying to be a bit more uh, western friendly in in some ways and basically trying to diversify their uh, their economy away from oil which um <laughs> I guess as we've seen the oil price uh, go into negative probably a, a smart move to be doing that the the question I guess is and this is a broader societal one and and obviously you look at um the human rights record in Qatar and they're buying all these football clubs and, and all these sorts of things, you know, how, how much, you know, how important is it to us as uh, human beings and as people who love these these sports, um, you know, how, how much uh, hypocrisy are we willing to put up with and how much are we, you know, where are we going to take a stand? Because, you know, I've seen interviews with, uh, you know, Premier League fans saying, well, yeah, you know, I don't really like insert country here, but, um, you know, hey, they've got us a premiership or, you know, oh, they, they can afford to buy us a new striker. So, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look the other way. So that's this kind of on a personal level. I guess these things, sport washing will continue to happen and it, it will work as long as we don't, you know, take a bit of responsibility for it. And, you know, if you see, you know, en masse, uh, you know, Premier League memberships being cancelled because they actually no, we don't we don't like the fact that we're owned by these guys. Then maybe there'd be some action. But yeah, I, I, as far as I can tell, I think sport washing works because people are sort of willing to let it work. You know, they oh well, yeah, we want to see some cricket in Saudi Arabia, so yeah, we'll we'll just put up with it. So yeah, it's 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 a tough question, and it kind of leads to a, a broader one that I I, I would put to well to, to all of you uh, how do you think sports should engage with um you know with regimes that have bad human rights records i was looking this this came up as you said bez a few weeks ago i was watching a, a documentary about the west indies team that, that toured apartheid south africa um but you know plenty of governments these days are i would argue worse than apartheid south africa and they're participating in international sport without too many 
troubles. So, you know, how, how does, how does obviously cricket, but, you know, sport in general, how does sport strike that balance of trying to, to push countries in the right direction, but also, you know, um, <laughs> having any countries at all willing to participate? So we have to remember that while sports is a tool of diplomacy and a very important tool of diplomacy, sports and sporting codes and sporting industries are not bodies that where their function is to police states, right? There, We actually have UN bodies for all of those things. And funnily enough, we haven't given them the power to police states in the way that we should. That's why diplomacy itself is an important tool that where those, those UN bodies like um, the ICC or um, the Human Rights um, Committee or any of those where they don't literally have the power to police, we can use di- diplomacy to um, gently... Um, ease people in the right direction or in the correct direction. So sports always must engage with human rights. It's it's whether it's the principles that they adhere to within the sporting bodies and institutions themselves, or whether it's in the broader spectrum of the world. But when you ask the question, how do sports engage with human rights abusing regimes? With the first thing that we have to remember is that there is no such thing as a regime that doesn't abuse human rights. Um, I worked on a four-year study, uh, got almost five-year study, that looked at the, the human rights abuses of every single UN member state. And yeah, there were sections in my Excel spreadsheet for one state that were shorter than others, but there is no such thing as a state that does not abuse human rights. Not every state is a Saudi Arabia, for example, but where Saudi Arabia falls down, another country might be better. But the same is true. There are situations in Saudi Arabia where they are better than other states. And that is not a moral judgment. It's just to remember that a lot of human rights engagement that that states have are those that are within their interests or within their spheres or or align with their cultural values and uh, and instead of a Western imposed cultural relativism concept. So how do sports bodies or sporting institutions engage with human rights abusing states? First of all, we remember all states are human rights abusing states. Unless we're looking at the example of apartheid South Africa, then we're talking about things as a matter of degree. While the answer is never award them this contract that allows them to host a World Cup or whatever the case might be, especially, I'll use the example of Qatar, um, we know what's going to happen in Qatar. We know the violations that occur to um, laborers, um, for, for non, non-citizen non laborers in particular. And we know that there's going to be a lot of problems. We also know that the FIFA World Cup in South Africa got in the mid 2000s I don't remember I don't even like I don't even like soccer so I don't know why I talk about it so much but I'm going to we also know that that um that world cup in South Africa saw not only ridiculous ridiculous rise in prostitution related crimes but a lot of rapes as well adjacent to it and and that's not necessarily South Africans engaging in it it's those of us who go to South Africa to watch said World Cup engaging in it. So nevertheless, my point is, while we don't need to award them um, contracts or bids or hosting rights or things like that, the answer is definitely not ostracize them. Because where, and you gave the example of um, Saudi Arabia and their situation with women, it's good for Saudi women to play cricket, even when Saudi women cannot or or were not able to drive, I should say. Um, To... One wrong doesn't, no, 
excuse me, one right doesn't rectify another wrong, but two wrongs don't rectify, right? So we want Saudi women to play. So we should encourage that. And and it passes on a message to women holistically within the country. It hopefully chains, um, changes attitudes of, of, you know, young sons um, watching their mothers and their sisters and, and things like that. It makes generational differences. But what we have to do very importantly as sporting institutions is not um, uphold a country and, and look at them as an example and say, look how good they are. They, they did a Women's World Cup or look how good they are. They do X, Y, Z or the other. So while we do need to engage, we need to remember the limitations of that human rights engagement and use it for the power that it actually has, which is diplomacy, which is bridging borders, which is bringing out commonalities in people, reminding us that that despite your arbitrarily drawn artificial lines and your weird cries of nationalism and your bizarre sense of belonging to a country that your ancestors probably didn't even come from, which is true for everybody because it's how human history has worked throughout time. Despite all of that stuff, intrinsically, we are pretty much the same. Obviously, there is a slight addendum that where there are breaches of sporting um, sporting laws, sporting treaties, sporting codes, however your um, conventions, however your sport organizes itself. For instance, um you know, on-field racism or abuse or whatever the case might be, you must, must, must act because it sends a strong message. It says that these things are unacceptable and we will not condone them. And it should not send that message dependent upon who the individual in question is, how good they are, how important they are for the country in question, but it should send that message widespread and to everyone unilaterally. Well, I want to bring this back, and Tim, you're almost becoming a, a guest of the show here rather than um, one of the, the hosts asking questions because I, I want to pick your brains again to, to talk about your time at, at Hong Kong. And we know that in the last few months, tensions had kicked off again between Hong Kong and, and mainland China. Were there any issues in, in operating in your precarious position in that state of affairs even from a cricketing point of view were you were you thrown into situations where you had to deal with with political stuff like that not really um must be noted when i i left hong kong uh just over a year ago it was really everything kicked off after that um so i didn't have to operate in that situation look the the I don't know, tension's probably the, the, the best word to describe it. You know, I got there in 2013 and in the, the year later was when they had the original Occupy Central Movement with the Umbrella Revolution. So there was underlying tension and which which blew up uh, in, into that situation and it was never really... There, there was the talk about um, official talks between the protesters and the government and there was some lip service but nothing was there was no resolution to any of it anyway so there was always a, a little bit of tension there but as a as an expat or as a, a, a non-ethnic Chinese as, as anyone not of Chinese origin is referred to in in, in Hong Kong um, you, you sort of feel like I'm, I'm not sure if I can have an opinion on this because I'm an outsider looking in I have I have two. Uh, I have more than. I don't have a Hong Kong only a Hong Kong passport. I have another passport that means I can come and go as I want. And this isn't a place that I'm. I'm here forever. But from a cricketing point of view, uh, our challenge was also always positioning the sport to actually be something that brings Hong Kong together and reflects today's Hong Kong. And I thought that was always going to be a strength. 
you know, it was Hong Kong's highest ranked sporting team. It was fighting up there with Korfball as being the highest ranked sporting team. So I always said the highest ranked major sporting team. And I saw that as a real strength of the sport. And it wasn't necessarily reflected in the way that the government or necessarily the Hong Kong public saw. And I, I, I there is a point to my story, I promise everyone who's got this far, um, which I found really puzzling in that the, the, the Hong Kong soccer team um, was um, a real um, melting pot of, of cultures of people that had moved to Hong Kong as professional players to play within the Hong Kong Premier League and stayed on and, and were able to represent uh, Hong Kong in, in football, in soccer. So that meant that it didn't really represent Hong Kong culture. You know, 90% of, of Hong Kong are, are ethnic Chinese in, in general. They're all, there are various uh, sub, sub um, classes there, but it was when China came to play against Hong Kong, again, a, a quirk of the, the global sporting association similar to cricket, but China is seen as stronger as Hong Kong. There was, there was a poster put out by the, the Chinese um, team saying, we have to watch out for the Hong Kong team because they're black, yellow, white, and all the, basically referring to a multiracial team that is Hong Kong. Um, and the Hong Kong fans really grabbed onto that and said, well, this defines Hong Kong and how dare you. But it was used more as a, a political prop, I think, than really them celebrating the the um, multiracial, multicultural na- nature of, of, of Hong Kong. So that was really the biggest issue that I, that I came into was that, that the cricketing team not being recognised as representative and therefore tough to get government buy-in and a lot of the hard work about growing cricket within the, the Chinese community and the, and the dragons and whatnot was around really trying to engage the local community. So it's interesting when there are underlying issues and sometimes sport can be used as a, as a political prop to further one's um, one's case or one's position. Yeah, again, a, a point that we have made on the, the podcast a, a number of times is that, yeah, for all of FIFA's shortcomings, uh, every FIFA member gets a vote. Uh, the split of funding is is relatively equal across the country. So there are definitely things that they are doing right. And, and I think the ICC can definitely take a page out of their book in, in some respects. And to bring that to, to women's cricket, we've just seen a T20 Women's World Cup where we saw something like 86,000 fans at the MCG watching a game of international T20 women's cricket. Uh, I, I don't think that women's cricket has been as popular as it was just a month ago. Uh, I heard on that podcast that you appeared on, Tim, the, the Gorilla podcast, I heard uh, Raf Nicholson from Cricket Her made a point about how this has the potential to take the wind out of the sails of the women's game. They, they garnered so much momentum up to that point, looking at it now, there's talk of uh, separate board broadcast rights for, for women's cricket, uh, building its own identity as its own sport. I, I think, Nick, you make a really good point in the in the production notes that we have that the game is a little bit more bowler-friendly. I, mm, I personally mm. like it because there's more ones and twos. From a, a skill aspect with the bat, I think in some ways... It's a it's a more entertaining sport to watch rather than just having the strongest guy out there hitting dingers for fun. Um, where does the women's game go from here in regards to coronavirus and beyond? We know that there's been um, a lot more support for the game. Uh, something like this does affect women's and associate cricket, perhaps a little bit more than, than some, perhaps because players might not be as financially stable as those from the men's game. We're talking about this from a, a broader cricketing sense, which encompasses the full members. Taz, where do you kind of stand on that? Because 
yeah, uh, women have had to make do in the past. You know, their professionalism hasn't been as prevalent in in professional sport, and cricket's another example of that. Do you think that in a way that, that women's cricket can actually grow beyond measure in, in regards to all this because they haven't been as financially dependent before this? So where does the women's game go from here? Um, and how does it deal with coronavirus? Well, the exact same way as the men's game, in all honesty. I understand what you're, what you're saying, what you're posing here. And that is that there's a little bit of a break in the impetus that the women's game was gaining. But I don't think that's going to impact anybody in any way, shape or form. Yes, the women's game and the associate game is um, under financial implications that uh, the big three are not necessarily under. Although having said that, we've all recently realised that Cricket Australia are maybe not as financially sound as as some of us, um, definitely myself, always thought. Uh, I don't know if that's mismanagement or what that is. But yes, the women's game has grown. But I think sometimes we have to question the way in which it's grown. We got a lot of eyeballs for the ICC um, Women's T20 World Cup, which was amazing, which was fantastic and, and was pretty much something that those of us who who do know a little bit about the women's game or have been involved in the women's game have known the whole time that people are actually interested if you broadcast it, if you promote it, if you put your bucks behind it, just like we've always done with the men's game. But things that I found, and again, I'm not trying to downplay what what was achieved there, but the things that I found really weird about it is why are we putting on bats in in like a show, a performance with Katy Perry that have fake eyelashes on and are painted pink with like lipstick. What? Admittedly, that was very weird. I can't or women can't enjoy cricket or men can't enjoy women's cricket unless you put makeup on a bat. Is that really something that we need to be doing? And going back to the administration of the Women's World Cup, one of the decisions that I found really weird other than pink bats with makeup on them was the choice to have Katy Perry on um, as entertainment. Um, something that concerns me about that is let's look at the Super Bowl, for example. How many people tune in for the Super Bowl halftime show and then switch off when the sport itself resumes again? And is that a situation that we want for cricket? Are we trying to get people there for a concert? And admittedly, a concert made by somebody who's super duper irrelevant from a non-mainstream cricketing um, playing country. Um, Yes, we, of course, all of us associate nerds know that the US does play cricket. But Katy Perry doesn't know anything about cricket. Katy Perry's not a cricket fan. She's not there for any reason other than she was last relevant, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago. And it's probably, I don't know, the ICC probably like logged on and and looked for pop female pop stars with high numbers of followings or, or something bizarre like that. I mean, what about Rihanna, who is not only from a cricket playing country, but actually goes to the cricket, actually enjoys the cricket. And P.S. is super duper relevant. So, you know, I know I know that's not the ICC purposely trying to mess up, but it does make a difference when all you have in your boardroom are males of a certain age from a certain place and from a certain outlook. Um, I know there's women involved in um, in 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 setting up things like the Women's World Cup. However, how much do those people understand how we actually get eyeballs in the game? How much is Katy Perry going to do for getting eyeballs into the game as opposed to what Elise Perry has done? Just for example, how many children have been inspired by Amelia Kerr? How many fathers have taken their daughters to, to cricket matches and not realized that maybe their daughter would end up playing as well as their sons? And, and that has all changed from the likes of Sarah Taylor, Alyssa Healy, Sun Amir, you know, like so many other people. So I didn't like the the Katy Perry decision, 
mostly because she's irrelevant and also because I know there are a lot of female pop stars or enough female pop stars that actually do know about the game, that enjoy the sport, that probably should be the ones that are involved in it. So I don't understand our marketing, our administration, um, the efforts that we make in terms of broadcast, any of that. And I think it needs some serious work from people who not only understand the women's game or how to market to women, but also what is and isn't relevant within pop culture today. We're actually going to have um, Max Abbott from the ICC on on next week, hopefully, who's head of marketing, uh, media and marketing for um, I think sorry, media and communications for the the World Cup. And I guess we could ask him this this same question, but I put it to you about the Katy Perry. Do you not? And I'm just probably the person. Do you not see the the action of going after the most followed? I, I think she's the most followed female. Um, performer or celebrity, shall we say, on on uh, suitable to perform at a, at a sporting event to try and raise the profile through that network as, as a as a clever thing, or do you just think it, it goes deeper than that? I see your point about it being a clever thing. First of all, Katy Perry is the most followed because it's all the grandpas that are following her. She's super irrelevant. She hasn't come out with a song or a song that's been a big hit for a real long time. I mean, I'm I'm too old to know what the kids are listening to these days, but I'm pretty sure it's someone like Dua Lipa or something like that. But it's not just about the tactic of going after that. It's about the importance of retention. It's it's the same thing that I said about the Super Bowl halftime show. How many people are tuning in and then tuning out? Um, I know that, that the Super Bowl, when I was living in England, was on way too late. And the year that The Who performed, I stayed up. I watched the first half of the game. And then I watched The Who. And then I was like, cool, bedtime, got classes in the morning or whatever the case was at the time. So I think the retention is is a more important thing. The part that I see is deeper than that is, is going after what you perceive. It's all well and good when it's about hashtag girl power or whatever to some extent anyway, some extent. But when you're packaging it in a way where it's making femininity look a certain type of way, it's also adding some kind of unrelatability for a bunch of the girls that do engage in sports. With the Katy Perry thing, it's much less about like Katy Perry herself and then just the marketing tactic of of going after someone who, who actually isn't relevant. You know why she's relevant to, to Alyssa Healy and, and, and players who are 31 years old is because they're 31 years old. Um, you know, and I'm in the same age group category as those guys. But But it's just about if you're if you're trying to retain kids then you go for a younger demographic if you're trying to retain families well then you don't go for the girl who first of all released a christian evangelical album and then when that tanked and didn't work out released a song called i kissed a girl and i liked it to to get her fame or garner her fame so i I mean it's not just katie perry herself that's a little bit of a problem it's what are you actually going for what is your marketing tactic here because katie perry spent a career trying to appeal to men or use like um sex appeal in a way that works for men. She's not about the the feminist aspect of sport or she's not sporty spice to make an even older reference. And then it's not that she's family friendly. They've just gone after her because like you said she's the most followed female artist. Well, I know in my experience um growing up my mum and sister were basically never interested in cricket at all, but you know now now that at least Perry and Co are dominating, they they will actually bring it up and say, "Oh, you know, did you did you see the the women's cricket. And so I think on a personal level, it seems to be, um, you know, obviously anecdotally um, making some level of difference that cricket is able to, and this is another uh, Tim Cutler 
theme here, but um, build these heroes of you know getting people like Elise Perry in, as as household names, and and it gets people like my sister who have never cared at all about the sport to at least pay a little bit of attention. But the key point there is that the product, aka the the cricket, is the the biggest factor in all of that. It's just that the uh, the broadcasting and the marketing to bring out that cricket out of um, places where it wasn't shown before, you still it still needs that excellent quality in cricket and the Elise Perrys and and the people leading in these particular sports to to drive the product home, right? Yeah, absolutely. You need the Elise Perrys and the Alyssa Healy's and the Amelia Kerr's and everybody else. There's ten. There's honestly dozens of women that we could be naming right now. They are the product. And yes, showcasing it is what's important because that product, as in women who have been just killing it in cricket, have existed for a very long time. This is not the first generation of excellent female cricketers. This is just the first generation that have received anything close to the attention time, energy, money, resources, whatever that they deserve. I'll give you a small example, guys, of what I mean. Who is the first double centurion in in ODI cricket? Belinda Clark. You're not going to trick me up. Yeah, absolutely. It's Belinda Clark. And so many people don't know that to the level of which that if you ask the internet, which is supposed to know everything, the answer to that question, it still tells you such a tenduker. So Belinda Clark was doing her thing and doing it in a way, making records that, let me let me phrase it the right way, making records that the men had not yet made a long time before other people were. And very few people, it's just the nuffies like us that know about it. So it's not that Belinda Clark wasn't also a badass back in the day and that Elise Perry is the first badass to have existed. That's absolutely not the case. It's just that someone like Belinda Clark never got her moment in the sun, that we're finally, 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 these women deserve it and they deserve more, but we're finally giving it to them now. I'll give you another example. Um, who is the T20 player with the most number of, cumul- of of T20 runs in the world? Elise Perry. Susie Bates. Ah, so close. It's not uh, Rohit Sharma. It's not Virat Kohli. It's Susie Bates. And that's another thing that people don't know. She's the most prolific T20 player player that exists, but people don't talk about that. You know, the women's New Zealand side have posted the largest total in cricket, but people don't talk about that. You know, um, we, we just look at the men's game and and ignore what happens in the women's game. And it's some of it is because of, of sexism in, in the sense where I mean that men will be like, oh, but, you know, the boundaries are in closer. So if they hit a six, it's not actually as far or whatever stupid things that they say. Well, we know that the reality is that I bat against a bunch of these guys that bowl to me and say this dumb stuff. And nobody's moving the boundaries in on those on those grounds in England. They're not moving them in for me and I'm still smashing them all over the place. And that's when they'll complain about, you know, having an arm injury that's just been uh, <laughs> that's just been triggered or whatever. It, it's just it's just people. Those people are always going to be around. And those people are the guys that have such a frustration with their own lack of achievement that they need to try and minimize the insane achievements of Susie Bates or whoever the case might be. But some of it is the industry and some of it is the fact that we have never given them the airtime that they deserve. We've never put the bucks behind them. We've never broadcast them properly. And that's our problem as an industry. That's our fault as an entirety. Well, it's the other thing too where people deal with with semantics where they'll they'll talk about a, a world record, but they won't say in men's T20 internationals, just assuming that, you know, the statement that they're making is only relevant to the male aspect of the game. And, and it's something that some people have, have found it very difficult to 
to to fix up in their in their subconscious which you know for us is now you know because i don't want to toot our own horn here at the at the ec podcast but i i think that we'd have to be looking and and covering women's international tournaments around in the last two years we'd have to be doing that more than than anyone else around so for us and and andrew nixon who was on just a couple of weeks ago he always makes the point about it is that the point being that you know a lot of the records that people are bringing up are only the men's records where yeah well you know Uganda put up two for 314 in a T20 international last year. And that's, that's the highest score across both men's and women's cricket. So it will become a point where, you know, things need to be marketed. Things need to be promoted. Records need to be, to be shown to, to, to people inside and outside of cricket to, to develop the sport on that side of things. I think it, it, it's crucially important. Um, and yeah, just that, that idea of Susie Bates, you know, for us, you know, we're a little bit, Australian centric and we would you know when I think of women's cricket you know we, we can't really go past the likes of, of Perry and, and Healy and, and so on but you know a lot of these female cricketers are torchbearers in all their respective countries so it becomes a case of you know making sure that we we give these people you know prominent um, space as as heroes as, as creating heroes is what Tim you know wanted to do with with, with Hong Kong cricket and, and other stuff like that I think it just becomes a case of yeah, getting the story out there and making sure that we're all, you know, on the right side of history here, that we do know about going back to, to eras where women's cricket wasn't as quite covered. You know, we talk about the Karen Moultons. We talk about, uh, I think Amelia Kerr made a, um, a a double hundred in, in international cricket not so long ago as well for New Zealand against Ireland, I think it was. But yeah, it, it's important that we we make sure that we, we do continue to to profile these stories because you know that these are the names that that the 10 year olds now the 10 year old girls playing cricket in, in all of these countries will, will hopefully end up trying to to emulate it and one day playing alongside because you know that's what it, what it's all about for a lot of these for a lot of these kids growing up and and for countries developing their cricket and i think in some ways the women's game has really strived to do that you know we look at thailand and, and not only are they overachieving but in terms of the way that that Thai team is put together, they're basically all all people, all players who have picked up a bat and ball in Thailand are all not exactly from, from places where cricket has been a big part of their culture. They've basically picked up cricket and, and run with it to a point where they're now at a, at a T20 World Cup. So I think they're, they're great beacons for, for what the women's game can be in a lot of these associate countries. That's exactly it, Bez. I think you make some really important points. That's exactly the power of women's cricket and associate cricket. By the way, I hate calling it women's cricket because it's just cricket. But but you know what I mean. It's, it's the entire power of it. It's about actually and genuinely moving across those boundaries. It's about developing the game. It's about seeing what we can do differently, what we didn't do before. It's about attracting new people, new countries, and genuinely spreading the game across the world. The amount of goodwill that the Thai team managed to to garner for themselves, and some of it is, you know, temporary eyeballs, as, as we know in, in the associate sport, but some of it is genuinely opening people's eyes to the fact that, well, associate cricket isn't just about expats. 
somewhere else. I really hate the expat argument because, uh, I mean, what is Devin Conway in New Zealand? He's, he's a South African who came here because he couldn't get into the South African side and now he's going to play for New Zealand, which is great, which is, I mean, if he's good enough, which he absolutely is, then play for New Zealand. It's irrelevant. To me, borders are meaningless and, and, and very arbitrary, but that just could be because I've now lived on five continents. <laughs> but that's the entire power of the game, right? It's reminding us what we all share, the power of sport, the power to overcome boundaries, the power to change cultural and social attitudes, the power to create heroes and actual genuine role models for children the power to show little girls or or little nepalese kids or you know whatever the case is that that this is something that you can do too if you choose to and even if you don't choose to if let's say sandeep lamachana has achieved what he has achieved being a nepalese kid uh, a nepalese young man now i should say then what's stopping him inspiring a nepalese kid from pursuing his dream. It might not be cricket. It might be, I don't know, drag car racing or like being a radiologist or whatever the case is. But these guys are inspirational no matter what it is that you want to do because you see people putting their energy and their focus and their strive into something, coming together, getting to make their, their dreams and their aspirations come true. And that's absolutely the power of cricket rather than a lot of the negative stuff that we think about all the rest of the time. Well, and that sort of brings back to our points about, um, you know, the, the role of sport in, in uh, bringing people together. And, you know, we want cricket to overthrow its uh, colonial history because then you have teams like Thailand that bring a completely fresh approach to the game and, and a different way of, uh, you know, of, of looking at things, which is, as a fan, just as a, you know, in going back to the financial side of things, I guess, as a fan, you're improving the product when you have more different teams because... They have, you know, they play a different brand of cricket. They they play, they bring something really unique and and non Commonwealth, if you want to put it in that term, uh, to to the game. It's been great to have you on again, Tasneem, in what's been a two part special. Once again, thanks for joining us, and we'll hopefully catch up again very soon. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always, and I can't wait to speak to you guys at least on a podcast again soon. As we said at the top end of the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast and please share the link with all your cricket-loving friends. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash EmergingCricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. And that will give you access to extended cuts of a number of our podcasts and you can have a say on the show's direction. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your favourite social media platform and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, on behalf of myself, Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and Tasneem Samakhan, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.